0: The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I am your gracious host, Bo McMillan. And today we're going to be discussing gastrointestinal issues in children, particularly irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. With me in the studio to lend their expertise on this topic are Dr. Danny Mallon and Dr. Tamara Hajat, both pediatric gastroenterologists here at Cincinnati Children's. How are you doing today?
0: We're doing great. I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks for having us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting topic um, and particularly relevant to families because these two issues uh, have very similar acronyms, but are uh, it seems pretty different in, uh, in, in what they can uh, do in terms of affecting kids. So I think just off the top, so we can get a baseline, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about uh, what each of you do here at Cincinnati Children's. What does your day-to-day look like?
2: So as a pediatric gastroenterologist, we take care of um, patients in the clinic as well as in, in the hospital with gastrointestinal issues. Uh, it also includes liver issues um, for our entire division, um, but that's what we specialize in. So my day-to-day is seeing patients in clinic. About half of my week is spent doing that, and then the other half of my week is doing education and some other administration work. Tamara and I both are leaders of our celiac disease center. We also essentially serve all patients coming in with any gastrointestinal issues. We consider ourselves general gastroenterologists with um, lots of patients with lots of disorders, including the ones we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we treat patients from IBS, IBD, celiac disease, belly aches, all of that. So that's, uh, that's, us in a nutshell. <laughs>
1: so, so basically any kind of stomach issue, anything yes. like that, they're coming in. and Bring it on. That and more, it sounds like. Yes. Oh,
0: yeah.
2: We joke with our families. We talk about poop.
0: Yeah. We talk about
2: vomit. <laughs> we talk about belly aches. We talk about this stuff all day long, and it's a ton of fun. Yeah.
0: I tell my families, um, they pay me to talk about poop, so.
1: <laughs> I, d- I don't know many jobs where you can just say that <laughs> and still have the correct context. Yeah. But- <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, again, thank you for being here. Let's continue to uh, be high level here as we start off. So I want to set the stage for gastrointestinal concerns in children. How common is it for kids to have stomach pain or or any other uh, gastro problems?
2: Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, GI issues in kids are super common. Of course, it's our whole lives. It's what we do every day. And in general, pediatrics clinics, they see a lot of them too. Uh, In your pediatrician's office, they're dealing with a lot of these issues. There have been really interesting research uh, studies looking at surveys of school children and random surveys of parents. uh, And it's estimated up to 25% of all children have some sort of a chronic Wow. GI issue at some point in their childhood. and that includes chronic constipation, IBS, and then down the line, a little bit less common, uh, things like IBD, celiac disease, and things like that. So you know, it's it's a pretty common disorder. So in in terms of IBS and IBD, IBS has been estimated in about ten percent of all people worldwide. Oh. Um, and depending on the study in the United States, it's three to sixteen percent of children. Um, here in the United States, IB, D is a little bit less common uh, in general. It affects about one in a thousand people. And so it's, it's common enough that you probably know somebody mm-hmm. with IBD, and, it's, and uh, it's absolutely common enough that you know somebody with IBS.
1: Yeah, and, and these, these conditions, and I'm sure it's different depending on the condition, but is this something that children are typically born with? Does it develop over time? Can it be caused by an incident? What does that look like?
2: Oh, that's a good question. It, it, almost always it's something that's acquired. It, it emerges at some point in childhood or later in life. Uh, there are very rare genetic changes or genetic diseases that you can have that um, predispose you to developing uh, what we call very early onset or even infantile onset IBD. And IBS can affect infants and other chronic GI issues can, of, can affect infants. Um, but it's almost always something that emerges during infancy, childhood, or, or later.
1: Yeah. Dr. Hajat, so we've got IBS and we have IBD. We love our acronyms here. They sound very similar, um, but in fact, they're, they're pretty different. Can you walk us through what they mean and then how they're different from one another?
0: Absolutely. So there's a big difference between IBS and IBD. IBS stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome and IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. And there is a big difference between um, the two conditions. To simplify kind of what the difference is, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome is a condition where you have symptoms. So you have belly aches, you can have constipation, You can have diarrhea, but there's no actual organic condition going on. Hmm. So you don't have ulcers. You don't have any abnormalities in the intestines. Now, I can't say that on the microscopic nerve level that there isn't anything going on. We know it's a disorder of the connection between the brain and the gut. So when your gut and your brain, nerves disconnect um, and stop communicating, then the nerves start alerting of pain Hmm. and diarrhea and sometimes constipation. So it is a true condition Um, with mostly symptoms. Now, inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, you actually have ulcers in the lining of the intestines. So if, for example, we do a camera study to look into the intestine or look into the colon, you can see ulcers. While in IBS, the lining of the intestine looks normal. Hmm. And it's very important to distinguish these two because they're managed differently and the symptoms are different. And a lot of people confuse them. And both kind of run in families. So we oftentimes ask the family, do you have, I- is somebody in the family have IBD? And they say yes, but they mean IBS. Sure, yeah. So very two distinct different conditions uh, that are managed differently um, in in uh, patients.
1: That's so fascinating with IBS and, and the connection to the brain. That's, I, I, I'd never heard of that before. I mean, I, I, Not being a doctor, I I typically wouldn't think that the gut and the mind are connected much at all, other than just you know normal function. So that is actually caused because of a disconnect between.
0: Yes, yes. So a lot of people like to say your brain uh, and your gut are similar; they look alike, and your gut is a second brain.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah.
0: So like when you see your small intestine, you kind of you're like. it looks similar to a brain and there's a lot of nerve endings in the brain that are similar to the nerve endings in the gut Hmm. and you know like when you get excited you get butterflies in your stomach or people say I have a gut feeling that's the connection that we know of between the brain and the gut um so a lot of times a disconnect happens and Your gut is supposed to send messages to your brain when something is alarming. Mm. And when a disconnect happens, it sends messages to their brain that are not correct. Mm. Um, And it says there's something serious going on while something is not serious going on. Um, And then the pain happens.
1: So is this why I... Get that special kind of excited when I see my food coming out at a restaurant and they're heading towards me, and I know I'm about to
0: get. Yeah. To <laughs> so yes, you see, you see the food, and then you start kind of your salivary glands start to salivate and and produce like all of those. Uh, fun secretions in the mouth, and then your stomach starts gurgling, and that's the connection.
1: Um, so w- one more question just along this same line. So in, in terms of these symptoms, which um, symptoms cause is very different between IBS and IBD, um, do they manifest differently in adults compared to children?
0: Good question. Yes and no. It, I think it's because there's a different in vocabulary between children and adults so uh for example ibs kids can say i have stomach aches but what they really mean is i feel nauseous Mm, yeah um they can't say if they're constipated or have diarrhea Uh, but adults are more able to express their symptoms and actually pinpoint it so and we know that um a lot of conditions um, can present differently in kids than they are in adults, but it's not a big difference. And same for IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it can manifest different in kids where it can affect their growth if they're still growing. Um, so one of the manifestation can be that they're not getting taller, Hmm. they're not gaining weight, Um, they're behind in school, which adults who reached their adult height, you can't see that Mm. in them. It can affect adults' weight uh, or function, but there's kind of a difference in, um, a slight difference between the manifestation in kids and adults. But the general ones are similar, so. Um, Belly aches, diarrhea, for inflammatory bowel disease, blood in the poop, um, and um, other conditions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes that makes sense. I I, I think that's particularly interesting what you said about we know that kids can't always um, fully communicate what's happening in their bodies, and so Mm -hmm. you know parents kind of have to guess at what it is. Or you know they, they have to be detectives. Um, Dr. Malin, that I think that transitions really nicely into us getting very practical in this. Um, what gastrointestinal symptoms should parents watch out for that tells them, oh, we should, we should go seek medical treatment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Tamara, um, alluded to a couple of these, but the things that really stand out to us that you should absolutely talk to your pediatrician about would be weight loss. Hmm. So weight loss in children, um, is very frequently an abnormal thing. The, uh, Poor weight or poor height gain. So, poor height gain is another issue that would be very unusual. Um, generally speaking, we have these growth charts for a reason. And if you deviate from a specific growth pattern, then that usually gets our attention quite strongly. The other things that definitely uh, merit evaluation would be abdominal pain as well as uh, blood in the stool. Mm-hmm. So, if you ever have blood in the stool, Sometimes you can have streaky blood if you have constipation and IBS. You can have blood in your stool because it, of the, um, some bleeding that happens with a super wide or firm stool, and people have maybe experienced that. But the uh, if you have recurrent blood in the stool, and especially blood in the stool while you're having diarrhea, that always gets our attention, and um, we like to see those patients sooner than later uh, in our subspecialty clinics. Um, the other things that should stand out to people and seek care for is if you have recurrent gi symptoms as well as kind of whole body symptoms like fevers we talked about weight loss waking up in the middle of the night with any of your gi symptoms would be an unusual thing so waking up due to pain can be seen in ibs but it definitely gets our attention and waking up in the middle of the night with the urge to go to the bathroom uh, to poop is actually an abnormal thing and would definitely Hmm. get our attention and these are things that would definitely get any um, pediatrician or pediatric primary care providers attention um, and maybe indications for a referral to a specialist.
1: Yeah, I think that's so helpful for parents who, uh, not being a parent myself, but knowing uh, a lot of parents who um, probably overanalyze maybe at times, I'm not saying inappropriately, but probably you know are looking at anything happening with their children that could be abnormal. And so I, I think it's very important for us to be able to call out those things. Um, so thank you for that. And And then I guess a follow-up to that is if, if they suspect, let's say they suspect something is happening, they bring them in for medical uh, attention and they are diagnosed with IBS or IBD, uh, how, how is each condition treated then? What, what are you doing for kids at that point?
2: So they're very differently treated. And I'll give get a general overview of our approach to treatment for both types of conditions. So, IBS, because it's a problem with the way that the nerves in the intestines and the entire GI tract are kind of Um, generating signals up to the brain and how the brain is responding, we focus it or we take different angles uh, to the patient. And actually something that is generally accepted as the right approach is something called the biopsychosocial approach. Hmm. And it takes into account the biological processes that are going on. So your intestines are stretching out as you start to eat and and gas is produced. Uh, Your intestines are kind of squeezing to move food along those are all biological processes that are happening in your body. And that actually may be triggers for some of those nerves to fire. Mm. And there's, there's psychological pieces. So we talked about like butterflies in your stomach, right? right? But the, there are other manifestations of that where like being anxious in the moment can actually stimulate more secretions and Mm. stimulate more contractions or slow things down. Um, and so that there can be a psychological input (laughs) down into the intestinal tract but then there's also the psychological experience of having pain, sure. right? And how much it's affecting your life. And that gets into that social part of that word where you can like having chronic pain can definitely impact your life and how you interact with the world. And then also how you interact with the world can actually affect your intestines. So, like, what are we eating? Yeah. How is this affecting school? How is school affecting my mental state? It is a big swirl of two-way streets sure. in all of those processes. And I like to tell my families, if you only approach one of those things, if you only address one of those things, you're going to miss most of the time. So approaching multiple angles is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. So we usually, you know, check the list of what are the symptoms that we think we can manage? Are there things that we can do to help with constipation through stool softeners or even medicines that help the bowel squeeze poop Mm -hmm. to move forward so that you go more regularly and avoid constipation that might be contributing to symptoms? Um, Are there things that we can do from a mental standpoint to address generalized anxiety if that's a problem for that patient, but also addressing the moment in which you're in pain Mm -hmm. and kind of increasing patients' coping strategies for when the pain is hitting them while they're trying to function in life? And we absolutely gauge our success in treating IBS with function. How much are you able to do your daily life? Can you go to school? Can you interact with friends and family? Is it getting in the way of activities? And if we're managing things well enough that you still have pain because this is how, this is part of who you are, um, but you're still doing your life, Mm -hmm. that's a huge success. That's great, yeah. Um, Switching gears to IBD, IBD, because the problem is inflammation, and it's kind of rampant inflammation that's... um, active in the bowel, what we're trying to do is tamp down inflammation. And the approach there is to try to get it under control when you first discover it and then keep it from coming back. Mm -hmm. And those medications are very much tailored to the patient. And it's something that we do. We call shared decision-making with the family where we assess their values, what's important for them in terms of medications and how they're delivered. Um, What's the potency of each medication? How effective is it? How effective do we think it's going to be? for people whose inflammation is in their small intestine versus their large intestine versus their stomach and things like that. And we tailor it to them. And a lot of times our patients will do fine with um, milder medications, anti-inflammatory medicines, but most of our patients end up needing some sort of medication that affects the immune system to try to dial it back from being overactive in the intestine. And so we use medicines that um, will suppress the immune system in a good way to make you have less symptoms, heal the ulcers, and keep them from coming back um, through turning down the immune system. Mm-hmm.
1: Essentially giving them that good quality of life.
2: Yes, you know. We, definitely, we judge our success in IBD treatment also in function, mm-hmm. right? How are they getting back to their lives? I like to tell my families, we're trying to put their Crohn's or their ulcerative colitis, the two kind of main types of IBD, mm-hmm. we wanna put that in the background so that your life can be in the foreground. And um, we also gauge ourselves by how well are the ulcer, ulcers healed. So yeah. we're, we're looking for that healing, where we, if we go back and double-check with um, subsequent camera studies called endoscopies, we're looking for no ulcers. That's the goal. And I think a lot of people, especially adults, sometimes get used to just feeling bad all the time. But it, definitely in the pediatric world and in the adult world, we are aiming for healing, and we're aiming for everything to be under complete control as much as the time as, much as, the time as possible.
1: I love that. I, I'm, I'm continually surprised about how much we're talking about, um, mental health in, in this, uh, this recording. I didn't, I didn't think that we would focus so much on this. Um, but it's, it's so fascinating to hear the link, particularly with IBS. Dr. Hajat, I wonder if you could, um, talk a little bit more about the role that stress can play in either one of these and what parents can do to help children uh, navigate that?
0: Absolutely. So I usually say that stress can make anything a thousand times more significant. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what the source of the pain is, stress can magnify it. So when we treat a patient, we usually treat the patient as a whole. We don't just focus on the stomach or the intestine. We focus on the patient as a whole, meaning their mental health, their physical health, their social health, uh, their performance at school, or anything that's very important to them. And um, I usually, in the clinics, when we talk to patients, um, talk about what stressful situations can be magnifying your symptoms or creating your symptoms and try to address them. So for example, if somebody has IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, um, and they've missed a couple of days of school, so they have all of that school workload, then that creates more stress. And the stress creates more stomachache because we know that the brain and the gut can act. And if your brain is um, thinking or worrying about something, then your gut will react to that. And then that creates more pain, more missing school, and uh, just creates a, a vicious cycle. So in order to break that vicious cycle, we need to know what triggers are. And with irritable bowel syndrome, we know some triggers are like food. We know that uh, some triggers are um, constipation, but one of the main triggers is stress. Um, and focusing on a on the mental health is important to manage IBS. So if they need a note for school to allow them to have a little bit of more time to make up the work that they lost um, or couldn't make up during the two or three or four days that uh, they didn't go to school, that relieves the stress. And I always say, I wanna set you up for success. Um, It's very important to give you the means and give you the resources that you need um, to be able to be successful in school, in life, in sports and everything. And although we know that uh, inflammatory bowel disease causes ulcers, stress can be one thing that is um, a result of having inflammatory bowel disease, but it also can make inflammatory bowel disease a little bit more significant. Hmm. So if somebody has inflammatory bowel disease or IBD and is needing to go to the bathroom every two hours at school, that can lead to stress. Sure. And then the stress can lead to avoidance of school because they don't wanna to go to the bathroom at school, which can lead to then more stress and more missed school. So, um, And then that will kind of Affect maybe their medication intake, their response to their medication. So it's very important to manage mental health in also inflammatory bowel disease. Our division knows that it's very important to manage mental health in inflammatory bowel disease. So we have specific psychologists that work hmm. with uh, patients that have newly diagnosed or have had inflammatory bowel disease for a while to address that certain issue. Um, same for irritable bowel syndrome, same for celiac disease. So regardless of what your GI condition is, if you're not managing mental health, regardless of its, if it's anxiety, depression, whatever it is, it's, it's gonna make the symptoms more significant.
1: Yeah, which again all goes back to the, this idea of treating the whole person, and um, I know here um, in, in healthcare we re- refer to it as a, a multidisciplinary approach. Correct. You have all these experts here who are, are really um, from different areas, focusing on one patient, and uh, that's so fascinating how just how connected our bodies are. Correct. Um, um, Dr. Hajat, I'm gonna stick with you on this, um, but Dr. Mellon, please please feel free to to jump in here. We love um, uncovering misconceptions here on the young and healthy podcast. So I'd love to hear from each of you. Um, what are you know, common misconceptions associated with IBS and IBD that we can clear up for people?
0: Mm. I'd like to start with IBS. One big misconception is that it's all in your head. It really isn't what we know it's a disconnect between the nerves of your brain and the nerves of your stomach or your intestines that leads to these symptoms. So I usually say it's kind of similar to having migraines. When somebody has migraines, they do we do MRIs, we do blood work, everything's looking normal, but the pain is there. Similar in belly aches, the pain is there. We believe that you have pain, And we can't identify an ulcer or an abnormal lab test, but we know what you have, Mm -hmm. and we are giving you a diagnosis. So that's one misconception about um, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, The second misconception that Dr. Mallon brought up when we were kind of talking about this is... Kind of that they're both the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, IBS is kind of like we talked about at the beginning of this episode. They're very different um, uh, etiologies or different causes of these two different conditions.
2: Yeah, I think the misconception that you talked about, and I and uh, it really like hurts my heart when I hear about patients who have perceived a doctor or someone else telling them. That they walked away from an interaction thinking that the doctor thought it was all in my head. Mm-hmm. And so I actually, I frequently call that out. What I am not saying is that this is all in your head, but what's going on in your brain and in your emotional state is gonna have an ef- effect on your GI tract, and your GI tract is gonna have an effect on your brain and your emotional state. And that two way street is happening, and that's all part of this. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, it's not all in your head, and the pain is very real, and we take it very seriously. The other misconception, I think, that just kind of came to me is that the severity of the pain does not kind of predict whether you're going to have IBS ah, okay. or IBD. Mm. A lot of patients come to us with abdominal pain, diarrhea, or difficulty pooping, and they're having, they're wondering whether or not they have something serious or something not so serious, but they're also very much seeking, how can I get better? Which also, you know, one of the points that we often make is these diagnoses, Tamara alluded to this, IBS is a diagnosis based on pattern recognition and meeting criteria based on symptoms and how long they've been there. And then there's one last criteria, which is, and no other causes can be identified through routine evaluation. Hmm. And it is well known that lots of money and lots of time and lots of frustrating normal tests occur in the evaluation of some of these, what we call disorders of gut brain interaction or functional GI disorders, including IBS, but also chronic constipation and things called functional dyspepsia, which is more like a nausea, upset stomach feeling after eating rather than anything associated with bowel movements. Mm-hmm. A lot of money gets spent, a lot of tests get done. And a lot of them come back normal which can be very frustrating to families is you're telling me there's nothing wrong what we're not telling you there's nothing wrong we're just telling you that that specific test was normal which helped us understand that you don't have crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or celiac disease things like that but we're still on track thinking that you have ibs and that's why we did the test in part of our routine evaluation to make sure you don't have these identifiable other uh, problems that do show up on tests. And so what used to be considered what we call a diagnosis of exclusion, where you have to do every test before you can be sure. Now we know that if you have the criteria, if you have that pattern of symptoms, then we can make a confident diagnosis without doing every test under the sun. Which is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. It's expensive for mm-hmm. patients as well as the entire our society. Yeah, um, and so we're we're careful, we're judicious. We try to do the right test for the right patients, um, and so and I like to kind of prepare my patients. I think you have IBS. I'm doing this test to make sure you don't have Crohn's disease mm. or celiac disease, and if it comes back normal, which I actually think it might, then we're still on the right track treating you as IBS, and trying to anticipate that a, ahead of time is is um, one way that we try to combat that misconception that all the tests need to be done Mm -hmm. before you're confident about the diagnosis.
0: And one last misconception I want to say is that kids can't have IBS. Mm -hmm. Um, They can. And it is under the umbrella of a kind of condition called functional GI, or gastrointestinal disorders, Um, So that's kind of the big category and IBS is part of that category. And there's other kind of things based on what your actual symptoms are uh, is under that category, like functional nausea. So your main symptoms is feeling sick and nauseous, functional constipation, um, functional dyspepsia. But all of that, I like to kind of, um, describe it as it's something in the function of your intestines, mm-hmm. the way that it's functioning. It's functioning um, properly, but the signals that have been kind of uh, picked up are not picking up correctly.
1: Mm. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. I, 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 I like what you said. Again, we're, we're all about uh, debunking myths and other things here. Um, I, I love what both of you said, particularly with the gut brain interaction, um, particularly about um, making sure that families don't feel like you're saying it's all in their head. I like that that's called out specifically. Um, you know, going back to you know, talking about advocating for kids um, in school, which can cause more stress having to deal with these kinds of things and missing school. I think all of those things are so important. Um, to again going back to this idea of treating the whole person and giving them the best quality of life they can as we wrap up here are there any other practical tips or uh, tidbits of information that you think would be helpful for families to know
2: I think knowing what to look for and knowing that if you're not having those red flag type symptoms, like what we were saying with weight loss and blood in the stools and fevers and recurrent vomiting and things like that, if those things are not emerging for yourselves and, and your doctor is saying that you have IBS, that you can be confident in that diagnosis. Um, and then seeking ways that you can tailor the management to that patient uh, is is an important thing to just Have that confidence when your doctor is pretty confident about your diagnosis. Um, I think some of the practical tips about living life with these conditions when it comes to IBS, you know, we really strongly advocate for kids to push themselves into function, uh, into going to school. As Tamara mentioned, that going to school is often a big challenge because you're distracted by your symptoms and you just feel bad. Mm -hmm. But there's problems that come with not going to school. It can make symptoms worse. But it also just the more you miss school, the more you miss school. And it's really affecting uh, your life and your future and things like that. So we are big advocates about trying to make it to school. We have written thousands of letters to schools to say, how can we partner with you? Please partner with the family. Everything is aiming toward getting them to school, keeping them in school things like that. And so if they need to take a break from, from uh, being in the classroom and go to the nurse for a couple of minutes and then head back rather than texting their mom to say, come, please pick me up. That's a win if they can get to the nurse and get back or take a break for themselves and get back or go to the bathroom. I write letters to free access to the bathroom. Seems like, um, that goes a long way for a lot of patients. Um, and then when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease, we're at similar things. We want kids to get back into school. So we want to prevent flares. We want to keep things under control as best we can, uh, limit their time in the hospital, limit their time getting their treatments um, to try to make sure that they're maintaining their function. So we advocate for kids all the time. There are specific, you know, kind of American Disabilities Act 504 plans that apply to both conditions. Mm. Uh, a lot of these GI conditions are eligible for 504 plans where you can work with your school to create the appropriate accommodations to make sure that they can excel academically uh, and function in their daily life.
0: And uh, to add to that, I would uh, encourage parents and families and patients to ask their doctor and understand the conditions. Um, So for example, I like to start from the beginning and pull up, I have on my badge, a a picture of your gastrointestinal uh, system and say, this is how it works for people who don't have any GI conditions. And this is what's going on with you. And this is why I'm doing this. So having that knowledge, um, asking the questions, wanting to understand what the next step is, is okay um and we are more than happy to answer the questions that you have a lot of times there is failure on our part to communicate to you of what's going on because we say big words. Uh, We say things that we assume you know what they are. And it's okay to stop your doctor and say, can you please explain this more to me? I I don't understand that. And uh, feel empowered to say, okay, if this doesn't work, what is the next step? Uh, Can you tell me um, what we can do later? And a lot of times as physicians, we try to gauge how much information you want from us because sometimes we don't want to overload you with information Uh, But also, we want to give you the correct information to feel empowered and confident with the diagnosis that we gave you. So it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask the same question multiple times. uh, And it's okay to say, I really don't understand this. Can you please explain it to me?
1: I love that. I hope every uh, parent and family member hearing this today feels empowered to do that because that is so important to advocate for your child. And um, I, I think, too, thank you for the advocating you're doing on behalf of your patients with schools and other things. I mean, that that just seems so important when it comes to conditions like this that really can affect your whole life. Dr. Mallon, Dr. Hajat, thank you so much for being here today. Um, thank you for your expertise. Thank you for the practicality. Um, I have learned a lot um, that I didn't know before, uh, and I'm sure that this is going to be very helpful to uh, all of our families listening. Um, so thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this is great. So. Yeah, this has been fun. wonderful.
1: You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. This episode was recorded on February 22nd, 2024. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes. Our theme music was created by Stephen Greco, and this episode was produced by Kayla McNeil.
0: Thanks for
2: listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook,
0: and Twitter.